Hello, I'm recording this a couple of days after we recorded the podcast because for this episode after the recording we have decided to do something a little bit different. Every week with each guest we often record for well over two hours and the conversation goes all over the place and thanks to the wonderful world of editing we can trim it all down. This week Gemma joined the conversation for Mental Health Awareness Week and so just the importance of the topic and how interesting the conversation was, we don't feel it's right to cut anything out. So we're going to be releasing this episode in two parts. This is part one. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Stanford podcast. First of all, Molly, excuses for last week, please. Oh dear. Uh, what was it? I had my best <laughs> friend's 25th birthday party and quiz on Zoom and I could not miss it for this particular friend. Um, so I do apologise, but I'm back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blacking off week 11. Who does books on lockdown? I mean, how is that possible? So anything interesting to tell us about the last two weeks, apart from a terrible excuse why you couldn't be bothered last week? <laughs> uh, not really, apart from that. It's just the same old, really. Just a lot Been of- getting in the shower fully clothed again or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I do live in my slippers. I haven't got back in the shower <laughs> in them, but like, I've, I've walked up to an S in them and done a... <laughs> got to the queue and done a full-on turnaround and gone back home and had to change them um i probably should do this bunch of and owned it but yeah apart from that just just lockdown same old yeah how was your last two weeks no one week lisa you could be bothered to turn up just to emphasize <laughs> that molly me? molly Hello? couldn't be bothered you could be bothered yeah how last me week? With the same brush anything yeah but you'll probably tell us something you did two weeks ago for the last few episodes oh sure she's young necessarily I've been doing a workout every single day finished my 30 day program of 35 minutes workout so now I've decided to step it up to an hour's workout because I'm thinking I've got the time I may as well do it with a bit of yoga splashed in there as well so I'll be ready for when are the Olympics <laughs> I'll be ready for those <laughs> just delayed them so you're in <laughs> I'll be in honestly being shot pit or something is your um, is your 35 minute workout with your American guy Hang on, oh, that, well, yeah. hang on. Yeah, on. Yeah, the YouTube American <laughs> my guy. Yeah. My virtual American guy, yeah, Millionaire Hoy. He's amazing. I love him. Love him. Yeah, so it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's all with him. Everything's with him. He's the best. I mean, we do know that yeah. you call your exes every now and then. We've had that rumor previously. <laughs> yeah, but I've only got about four. So, no, I've only, I've only got one. I've only got one. I don't really understand this whole, like, how is the dating thing working online? Does that work? Oh, so I really are people just bored? I mean, I can't even do dating in real life, let alone do it online. And at least you can hang up, can't you? <laughs> just get bad signal. <laughs> Actually, it's, probably, it's probably the best time for me to start dating. It's just well, I don't really have to speak to people, I can just go, no. <laughs> a few weeks ago, uh, I definitely caught a couple having an affair in the woods. True story, <laughs> without a doubt. So, I mean, it wasn't too revealing, but one guy had his road bike in the middle of the woods and another lady was walking her dog. And my favourite bit about it is the amount of planning that had to have gone into that. It amused me. And I just stood there and looked <laughs> with my dog was sniffing stood there around. And watched. Well, I just, I'm walking through the woods and suddenly there was... there's two people stood there. Graham, getting... there are so many things wrong with what you've just said. I mean, <laughs> first of all, that you sort of paused and like assessed the situation for starters. <laughs> But how on earth do you know they were having an affair? They might be a couple that have got four or five kids at home and just wanted to, well, as George Michael says, go outside. So they stood in the middle of the woods, right? Yeah. One well, with a dog and um, the bloke with his road bike. 
And as soon as I, <laughs> both, all sides of this story were startled, they, uh, <laughs> they exited the woods and walked in the other direction. That oh, was an affair. Wait till they finished and still. I, could, I, I couldn't get past them. It's like <laughs> there was only one pathway in the woods. Yeah, it was like I just tickled it. Amused me for ages. I was just <laughs> laughing as they all mm, fodded off. I've, yeah. I've still got so many questions about that, but I'm not going to ask them now. Mm, I know. Okay. <laughs> our listeners will really need to know any more detail about that. So they weren't observing the two-meter social distancing, but no, everyone, but they might have been but a everyone was fully correct. Right. You've been in a couple. When was the last time you then go to the woods with your bike and the dog to have a snog? Reality. In lockdown, when there's right. like other people, they might be living with their in-laws or something at home. <laughs> you, uh, you should appeal to get them on the, on the podcast and do like a big reveal. Great idea. Yeah, please. So <laughs> if, if anyone knows who they if, are. If, if, it's probably well, your if, uh, if, uh, if you no, I don't want to give away where I live, but yeah, if uh, if there was a bloke, they'll know, walk, they'll if, know who they are. If there was a bloke walking a black pug about three weeks ago, and you've got female with a white and grey dog, I saw you. Uh, yeah, come in. You don't have to reveal your identity. So they anyway. had a dog with them as well. Yeah, that was the whole point. She had a dog on the lead, and he had his road bike. And the key bit is a road bike in woods. Oh, oh, that's the key bit of that story, yeah. is it? Right, the, main, the main bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so intellectual that's conversation as ever. Uh, who you have heard, yeah, very much digress. Uh, <laughs> this week we are joined by Gemma Saggers. Hello, nice, Hi, to, Gemma. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Hi. Apologies for the level of this conversation. I promise, <laughs> no, I don't promise, but I hope it gets a bit better. <laughs> No, I absolutely love it. Like, people doing what they've got to do in lockdown is uh, it's absolutely fine. What would you think was the story, the backstory of two people meeting in a wood with a road bike and a dog and having <laughs> a little canoodle? Would you think uh, they're having an affair? You know, would that be your immediate assumption? So I think, very interestingly, um, Graham, it says a lot about where your mind's gone to. So that's definitely your projection rather than, you know, reality. <laughs> I'm joking. I think, yeah, I think um, one, of the, one of the things actually I did, I did think about when lockdown happened was think of all the kind of like underworld, underworld I don't have a better word for it, things that go yeah, on, so like affairs or things that people are maybe trying to keep hidden from their families or their spouses. And I, I, not to go like too serious too soon, but stuff mm. like addiction or stuff like gambling, drinking, all of the kind of things that are a bit taboo and, and I guess linked to mental health. Also things like affairs, which we don't necessarily condone. I don't know. I don't know how people feel about affairs, but <laughs> yeah, I think personally I'd rather... No. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, those, those kind of, you know, unspoken things. Um, I think it's really going to be really interesting on the back of lockdown, how they all manifest themselves. But um, Just go into the middle of the woods. Yeah, that's uh, people are going to get creative, right? So the, the woods... Um, <laughs> Changing the subject very quickly. Thank you. Thank I, you. <laughs> I understand that for you, congratulations are in order. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Yeah, it's been a it's been a big week over here, and I'm very grateful to the Stanford Podcast for working around um, me. So I handed in my final research piece on Wednesday, which I've been doing for oh gosh over a year now. So the level of I think I, I felt like I was in an extra lockdown level the past couple of weeks. I've just really been sat. I thought you were going to tell us that you were pregnant or something. Oh, well, oh no. and do you know what? Actually, I did actually have some really happy personal news. I'm not pregnant. But oh, right. I did get engaged during lockdown. No, I love that I went straight to my research master's. So clearly I know where my... <laughs> 
Yeah, um, the engagement. Is that what you meant? Yes, the engagement was what I meant. Oh right, is it a virtual engagement, or do you have you actually met them? <laughs> yeah, no, I met this guy online. We've been dating. It's been going really well. They've been going. They've been going to yeah. some woods with a dog and a road bike. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. That was me. That's my no, uh, no. So uh, I live. I live with my fiance, which I think sounds really weird to call somebody that. I don't, I don't mm. even know. We've we've lived together for a while, and so we were actually meant to be in Abu Dhabi today, going to visit his brother. And and um, I think he bought the ring already and had a really romantic proposal all planned for while we were out there. And then obviously lockdown hit. And I think if if I if I wanted to be cruel, I think he thought, right, if I propose now at the beginning of lockdown, she'll probably be a little less naggy and a little bit like happier. And, you know, it'll be, uh, it'll be, <laughs> yeah, it's a definite tactics. But um, no, I think he bought the ring. And actually he asked my, he, he got massively away with, the kind of asking permission because obviously he would have he would have I don't know played around a golf or done something with my dad but he managed to just give him a phone call and, and sort of ask him because my dad's a huge technophobe in terms of zoom so he thought rather than stress him out and get him <laughs> online we'll just we'll just do a call so yeah no but it was it do you know what in the middle of a hugely horrible time it was nice to have some something to be to be happy about so yeah, congratulations that's amazing thank you. Yeah, okay. so where does where does a lockdown proposal take place is it sort of you know in the kitchen utility <laughs> room on the porch <laughs> So it was the it was the first week where everything had been imposed. He'd been um, he'd been very strange actually all week when I look back on it and kind of up saying like oh like what's your favourite spot in Fairy Meadows and if you had to pick a favourite bench what would it be and I thought he was just you know generally having some quite poor conversation so I sort of went along with it uh, and he on the day came and he was like a little bit actually he wasn't too nervous in the morning but he was just struggling for conversation he kept saying to me. I really want to take snacks. Well, let's go on this walk and let's take loads of snacks. And I was like, no, they've been really clear on the news. We're not taking snacks. You know, you can go out <laughs> for one exercise a day. We'll go for this walk, but we're not taking snacks. And he was like, please, I just really want to take <laughs> snacks. And I was thinking, oh, he's lost it. So I let him and I was like, okay, if that's what you need to do, like we'll take snacks. And then we got to this bench actually overlooking the river. And, you know, I feel hugely lucky because obviously it's not quite as grand or as, uh, insta worthy as Abu Dhabi but it was really special like it was just it was perfect and uh he was fumbling around in his bag and I was thinking oh he wants a snack and then he and then he got down on one knee and uh and pulled out a ring so it was it was a huge, he didn't, he didn't huge surprise out, he didn't pull out a tub of hummus by accident uh, no or, or some hula hoops what would the amazing no. snack I think it was a Twix uh, a packet of salt and vinegar and a diet coke. I mean, it was... <laughs> nothing says I love you and will you marry me like that. <laughs> like a Twix and a diet coke. No, absolutely not. <laughs> we, we did. We did have champagne and we did come home and it, yeah. I think the weirdest thing has been obviously I haven't seen anybody in person like other than him since, and it's been over a month now. So I've got this beautiful. I've got this beautiful ring, but um, it's slightly too big. So. Uh, I've got this awful sort of plastic thing on it that stops it from falling off. But it sounds really silly, doesn't it? But one of the things I can't wait to do when lockdown is over is just go and get my ring resized so I can wear it without this sort of plastic thing on it. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm so yeah. sorry that I thought you meant my research dissertation. I feel so embarrassed now. But that's very much where my head's been in the last week. So. It's not on you, it's more, it's more on him. <laughs> that's also worth celebrating as well. That's a yeah. big achievement as well. Oh, do you know what? That was four years in the making. So that's felt, exactly. that has felt like a long time. We did also miss that when it, you said snacks that turned out to be Twix and kind of Coke, 
Lucy immediately went, hummus, hummus. <laughs> I'll Stamford yeah, middle class. I know. You can tell that I'm sitting here over in Peterborough and you're over there in Stamford with your hummus from, from, I was, from no, M&S. I, I was thinking a, a three for seven pounds in M&S. You've got your calamari, you've got your nibbles. He didn't make it like a believable snack ruse. This was just a what can I, what can I shove in my rucksack. And so, uh, yeah, we, we got a, I got a Twix. So that was... <laughs> Happy days. Uh, I could try and describe your full role. How do you describe it as an all-encompassing role in terms of what you do? I am a psychotherapist or counsellor or therapist, whatever you want to call it. Um, And essentially what that means is I work one-to-one with clients both online actually before lockdown and and in person and and now just online. And and I work in a person-centred way. So what that means is clients come to me with their mental health presentations or something that's not quite working for them it doesn't explicitly have to be a mental health problem it could be you know me and my partner aren't getting on or I I have quite low self-esteem or I'm struggling with my body image really anything that normal people go through um I really I really believe that therapy isn't just for those that are very mentally unwell I really want to advocate for everybody accessing support just as we would our physical health so yeah whatever whatever the presentation clients come to me and they talk mostly about about what they're experiencing what their what their story is and and my job really is to listen reflect back what I'm hearing I suppose um it's it's not about giving advice that feels really important to say I I don't have an agenda with people I don't know what's best for them I don't have a view on whether they should stay or leave their relationship but I do care very deeply about them you know you do you do make a very genuine bond with with people especially when they're talking to you about some of their most vulnerable personal stories so I might offer them things that they're telling me that maybe they can't necessarily hear themselves so that might be to do with their relationship or sense of self-worth or or whatever it is they bring to me but um yeah so my job is to really listen it's to reflect it's to integrate the theory that I have trained for over the last um four years but it's really it's not heavy science it's not about di- I don't diagnose um I'm obviously aware of mental health diagnosis but my role isn't to say this is your problem this is the solution it's to really sit with somebody hold space bear witness and and listen to their story really in in an empathic understanding and I hope I hope what feels like a very safe safe way and that can cover the extremes to the you know just as you say something like say something like it can still be a massive thing but coming from depression to personal abuse to eating disorders anxiety it can anything and everything yeah yeah good question so I think um I've worked with clients who are on the kind of more severe end of the mental health spectrum such as they have diagnosis of personality disorders and they you know they have gone through the NHS and been told very clearly what's wrong with them they might come to me because you know they've not found the care they quite needed so I I, you know I'm very comfortable working there but similarly you know like I mentioned a moment ago it's I also work with people who who can be quite unkindly referred to as the worried well. So people that don't necessarily have huge, they're not, you know, they're not suicidal, they're not a great risk, but they just want to really check in and find out how they are, who they are. I think one of the things that, and I'll go into this a bit more later, but I think we can we can internalize so many cultural messages from society that we get. And, and before we know it, you know, when we're, we're not really sure who we are anymore. And, and what therapy does really is it helps people to connect back to that 
really authentic version of themselves. And, and that's why it's important that I don't give advice because fundamentally the belief that the core of person-centered therapy is that you know yourself better than anyone ever, ever will. And it's about really teaching you to trust that connection to yourself and, and repair whatever has got in the way of that connection um, and, and ultimately cause mental health problems. How did you get into it? Where did it all start? <laughs> I'm 29 turning 30 this year, but I feel like I've got, had quite a lot of life experience. So I, I actually, so I went to Stanford High School. So I am a sort of Stanford girl. Um, had a really positive experience there that I was aware of at the time, actually kind of really enjoyed school and, and got a lot out of it but actually looking back it was very much um yeah you kind of had to conform I think quite a lot to fit in you know there was a certain hairstyle a certain length of skirt a certain way to to kind of do things correctly which I was fortunate enough to kind of pick up on and realize so went with to make life as simple as possible um and then went down the kind of traditional university route which I think is an amazing route if it's right for people but I think there are lots of different routes now that can be equally as right for other people. So I went off to university. If I'm honest, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I've always loved people. I've always been really interested by um, how people operate, what motivates them, what just people generally have always interested me. So I did sociology as my first degree um, down at Bath University. And that was great, that was fine. I actually got involved in my, in my final year there in student media and I absolutely, absolutely loved that and um, did a lot of student radio Bath's quite a sporty university I would not say I am the most sporty person going I, I like to jog and I like to I did my first Joe Wicks class in lockdown this morning so I do like to exercise but I'm definitely not at the level that some of the amazing athletes there are at so I kind of really found myself in third year um, amongst the media team um, I'm from a, I'm from a media kind of background anyway both my parents are journalists so I think that was always kind of came quite naturally to me and so then I decided uh, to go on and do a MA in broadcast journalism so I moved to London and went to City University and did an MA there which was great I think I'm much more comfortable being on your side of the microphone than this side um, which I hadn't really realized until today um, and I got a job um, where I started interning while I was there for Channel 5 News um, and that was that was amazing. Mm -hmm. the editor was Christina Nicolotti, who was really supportive of a wide range of intersections being represented in, in the media, which was really cool. I think on reflection, when I look back now, that was probably the first indication that I had as an adult that I struggled with my own anxiety and my own mental health. But at the time, I just didn't have a, a word for it. I didn't have a language for it. I didn't have anybody that was around me that particularly understood mental health and I'm sure as you guys know from doing the podcast you know journalism is a very high pressurized world there's deadlines there's you know long edits there's there's always something you can do and you're only really ever as good as the last piece of work that you produce so there's a lot of pressure um, and I certainly found that on a on a national newsroom level so I think when I look back now I was really beginning to struggle from some anxiety but just not really being aware of what that was I decided to leave journalism, which is going to sound really strange. Things were going really well, but I just, I think I just wasn't comfortable, and I, I but I didn't really know that at the time. So I actually got a job working, um, well, I got a job on the graduate programme at Harrods in London. Um, I'd actually, before I'd gone to Bath, I'd spent a gap year working at Selfridges in London and had an absolute ball, you know, luxury retail was really fun. So I was kind of, when I look back, I think I was going back to the safety of something I knew. I guess it's a lot less stressful having, being an employee rather than 
being self-employed. So all of those things I kind of ran back to the safety of. Um, and then I had a couple of really, really fun years at Harrods. I was a retail manager in the food halls. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have been there, but it's pretty spectacular. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that was really good fun. I managed the hamper and food entertaining department. So um, any anybody that needed, you know, a party organizing or a Christmas dinner or a banquet or any of the, I mean, we could do a podcast alone on the stories from the food halls. It was an unbelievable time. I really loved that. I really relished being in part of a team. I just, it was, it was great. And I certainly felt mentally a lot more well than I had done when I was working in within journalism but again I just wasn't aware enough to recognize any of this and then once I'd done that for a couple of years if I'm honest I think I hit 25 and I thought where do I want to be when I'm 30 I guess in the middle of all this um I'd been through a very bad um relationship one that I would one that I would class as abusive and got myself out of that um and really was kind of I'm not really sure how to put it. I guess I was on the, the back foot of just kind of being single in London, feeling a little bit lost, wondering what trajectory I was on in terms of, you know, I, I, I want, I've always been someone that wants a family. I've always been somebody that, you know, wants to get married. And I just looked at where my life was heading and the level of partying I was doing and the level of, I was having a lot of fun, but it wasn't going to ultimately give me what I really wanted. And I think actually, um, not to be too hard on Stanford School because they, I had, I did have a great time and that there were some amazing teachers there. But I had always wanted to be a therapist. So when I was about fourteen, I, I don't know if you remember Molly, um, but we had like a careers counsellor who sort of said, "Oh, what you know, what do you want to be?" And I said, "Oh, I want to be somebody that talks to people and, and makes them feel better." And she said, "Oh, oh don't be so ridiculous. That's not a job." And uh, she sort of thrust <laughs> this penguin career guide at me and said, "Go and pick something else." So then I was like, oh, okay. And then it turns out actually you, you can sit with people and, and hopefully make them feel a, a bit better. So I basically took the bold decision to leave Harrods, find a um, four-year master's that would give me what I needed to graduate with, you know, the correct accreditation and practice, sort of how could I get into the world of mental health most efficiently and also properly. I think one of the things I do really want to touch on maybe later is about how there's a lot of people out there calling themselves mental health experts that haven't really done the level of training that they need to do. And I think that's because the government doesn't put any legislation in place. There's, there's all sorts of political reasons for that. But, you know, I wanted to make sure I did it properly. I, I take mental health very seriously. And yeah, so I moved home. I moved back in with my parents, which at the age of 26 when you've been partying in London is is presents its own challenges for me and I'm sure for them and yeah then I did then I then I started and that's how I got to where I am now I guess in the longest answer to the question <laughs> you said though through all that though, at 14 there was something about people and I can see the connection then into journalism and retail because it is all people yeah absolutely. what do you think it was though that started that even at a young age of 14 what was the thing that it, that triggered that interest in your mind oh good question I feel like you're my therapist um because 14 is quite young to have a natural instinct for something isn't it but the fact yeah. is the, the instinct that you had at 14 was absolutely bang on I uh I, so I'm an only child so I grew up around more adults than I did children which I guess I think can have a positive and negative effect and that it just makes you more I don't know aware of things perhaps before your natural time I think I I 
grew up in a in a really interesting environment so as I mentioned my dad was a journalist he's a sports journalist he was away a lot and I think there was always probably just a an, a care that I had for my family that sort of I felt like I cared about them as well as much as it was their responsibility to look after me I've, I've always felt like I I really wanted to kind of you know make sure that they were okay too and I think I don't know it just I think I was quite a, a conscientious quite anxious child who just really felt I, I sort of have these memories from like netball practice where there'd be three of you and then the teacher would say get into pairs and my instant reaction was I don't want anyone to feel left out so I'll go on my own so I, I don't know I think I guess it's just empathy like overdeveloped empathy from a very young age which is going to obviously suit that career mm. I think also what you said about the high school is interesting my, my daughter's 11 and she's starting there in September and I'm absolutely thrilled about it because I think she will be very well suited to that environment I haven't experienced the school in recent years, but just I would think now in 10, you know, 10, 15 years or whatever later, it must have hugely changed. I mean, I know that the pastoral care there is, is a oh, massive thing now. Absolutely. Um, and I don't, you know, it just sounds a bit archaic, doesn't it? You know, the careers advisor and so on. It's, I mean, let's just hope that, you know, things are, things are a little bit different now than even... Yeah. Then. Yeah, than even then, which actually was longer ago than I'd probably like to admit. No, look, I am. Um, I'm still in touch with some of the teachers there, and I, I like I say, I had an unbelievably happy time there. You know, I, I really, I loved, um, I loved the teachers. I had some great friends. It was, it was a wonderful school. And I, but I think from a mental health perspective, the one thing, and I don't think this is the Stanford School specific thing. I think this is being a kid specific thing. Mm. I think the one thing that kids feel pressure on. At that age that they don't necessarily understand is that you know it becomes about survival right there's there's all sorts of hierarchy at school there's all sorts of groupings there's trying to make sense of mm. you know hormonal changes there's a huge amount going on and I think I think what I was trying to say was I picked up as somebody who is quite who's very empathic I picked up a lot of the kind of cultural messaging that that came through and I and I think exists within most organizations and sort of ran with that, which, which meant I had a positive time, unlike, you know, people that want to rebel or people that want to go against the grain and, and ultimately are going to give themselves a, a tougher time, but also perhaps are a little bit more authentic. So, yeah, no, I, my, uh, the last thing I want to do is speak badly of the school, but at the no, same no, time. I mean that, but I, like having a daughter of that age, one of my concerns is like her fitting in. And you said that you kind of well, I don't know if you said the word conformed. I think you did say the word. Yeah, no, conformed. I did. Absolutely. I'd rather just sort of fit in and go along with it. That's sort of where I feel happy in terms of my personality. And it might well be that she does. This. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But it's, you know, when they're on the brink of all of that, how will she fit in? And what, what path will she choose in order to... Because there are, you know, all these different groups and different sort of levels of social standing and, you know, all these things. And I, I very much hope that my daughter won't actually care a lot about that sort of thing. Because I think she is generally quite grounded and so on. But yeah, you will be exposed to it. And as you said, there's lots of things going on. Physical changes, you know, and just that's just one of the many things and, the, you know, the, the environment that you're in. It's No, absolutely. I think the advice I'd give to any parent or any child like is just about authenticity. And you're right, you know, if people can stay grounded and stay connected to who they really are, that's that's the that's the best thing you can hope for. And and however that presents itself Mm. is 
you know, is great. Oh, I hope she has a good time. Yeah, no, I'm sure she, I'm sure she will. She's so excited about going. <laughs> you join us in Mental Health Week. How important do you think things and events like Mental Health Week are? So I think we've got uh, to a bit of a point where we now have a day for everything. Um, we've got days for you know National Pizza Day, National I Love My Dog Day, and I think we have gone a little bit overboard on needing to celebrate something every day. But saying that, I really do think that Mental Health Awareness Week is one of the things that should definitely stay in the calendar. And the reason I, I really do advocate for it, I really think it's important, I'll definitely be doing something on social media myself, is that I think that mental health, sadly, is still so far away from where it needs to be in terms of stigma, in terms of people feeling comfortable talking about, you know, the fact they access support or just normalising um, getting help like we would going to a gym for our physical health or going for, to the doctors for a checkup. I think there is still so much to do. How much good do you think things like the work that the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, for example, do they just bring it to the forefront or are they actually doing some really valid? Yeah, good question. I guess, in my opinion, um, any advocacy, especially from such a high level, is, is hugely powerful and influential and really useful for normalising support. You know, if it's good enough for Wills and Kate, then it's hopefully good enough for everyone else. Teamed up with people like Brownie Gordon, who's a huge advocate for mental health and again shares her own own stories. I think I think we're getting much better at recognising it's a need, you know, that busting the stigma and talking about it is something we need. And that's definitely got to have come from, you know, the influences set by Wills and Kate. I think there's still a huge amount of work to be done on actually providing help for people that is accessible um, at all levels. And that's where I just don't see it happening so you know I think probably one of the frustrations of mental health awareness week for me this year will be yes it's great to raise awareness and yes it's absolutely fundamental that we do but I think from the inside of this profession there is so much to do on a political level on an accessibility level that you know people who can afford to come and see me and pay 50 pounds an hour that's great but that's just not a reality for so many people who are experiencing mm. mental health issues that are impacted by you know so socioeconomic issues and we have a lot of work to do so yes raising awareness is is brilliant and what Wills and Kate have done is fantastic but we need the government to get on board in a, in a far greater way than, than they are doing. What's the service now in terms of those that can't afford it do you just get an appointment with your doctor? Yes so I think there's obviously some charities out there doing great work um, but I know they have long waiting lists and it's yeah go go to a doctor see a GP get put on a waiting list um, and then get offered some cbt therapy which is is cbt therapy can be great at um, managing you know anxiety symptoms such as deep breathing or doing you know exercises to to help stress management but it really i guess the the best way i would describe it is like it's it's a it's a diet versus a lifestyle and actually i have a huge problem with diets but that's another conversation completely but it's you know it's the it's the atkins to the the intuitive eating it's the it's it's going to look at the weeds growing and cut them at root level rather than go down and really explore what's causing them to grow in the first place so i think one one point i'd really want to to say to listeners is there's lots of different kinds of therapy out there and if you are in a fortunate position to be able to afford to access it and um, then really do your research on what kind of therapy that you want to access because there are 
lots of different ones and it's the, the best indication of mental well-being from a therapeutic relationship is that you get the right type of therapy and the right right therapist for you so that's that was one of the questions i had about picking a therapist almost and that it is okay and people do mix it around a little bit and the first therapist you see might not necessarily be the right one for you and that's okay because it's got to work for both sides and to find and finding that right one for you is imperative to making sure it's a success yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more i am um, i offer so before i kind of sign somebody up to the therapeutic relationship i'll do an initial consultation with them and i always say to them that it's as much for them to work out if i'm the right therapist for them as it is for me to you know assess their emotional well-being and i think you know i'm not going to be the right therapist for everybody and i don't want to claim that i am because that's just not possible you know you can't be the perfect person for everybody and i think that we're not used as a society to having power over our care or autonomy over how we access that care and i think it's a really important point that you know if people are paying for this service then they need to feel that they're getting something they're comfortable with and they need to feel that they are you know having choice in in what they're accessing and you know I, again there's a long way to go in terms of you know this happening in the nhs and uh, you know sometimes you have to just get what you're given and when people are you know in a crisis state then some help is definitely better than no help but i think when we're talking at you know accessing at a private level it can be great to great to shop around and great to you know work out if this therapist is a good fit for you don't have more than therapist one therapist at a time um because that can be quite confusing shop around but then pick one <laughs> would you recommend people reaching out to a therapist not necessarily when they're at a low point but even when they're at a good point in life to reach out and because you said around the worried well a little bit and i guess this is two questions in one and when people are at a good point just to talk a little bit because they're potentially more likely to open up and you're more likely to hear different things whereas when people are at a low point it's going to kind of rain on something that's specific yeah absolutely um i think again i have to say it's it's a question of you know if you can afford to access this kind of care but if you if you can then i'd absolutely advocate for you know having a therapist i think it can be great to have somebody to check in with to really just listen to your problems from a completely neutral place but like lucy said you know not give unsolicited advice or have an agenda that you know people that love us they always have some sort of connection to our problem and that can be really hard when trying to you know listen to us objectively because although they want what's best for us they also probably feel that they know what's best for us based on you know something that might impact them so i think I think it can be really great practice and and certainly you know I've had therapy over the last four years and whilst I recognize I, I did need it I wasn't somebody that you would look at and say oh she's mentally unwell or she's you know she's at a point of crisis or she's very depressed you know I, I managed it very well the best thing I ever did so yeah I'd really advocate you know if you're if you're here listening and you're thinking oh I think I might want some but I don't know if I you know qualify or I don't know if I'm unwell enough you absolutely don't need to justify ever accessing care for yourself. And I would never turn anybody away or tell them that they weren't well enough to come and see me. It's a very British thing in the US. If people have therapists like we have dentists. Absolutely, I agree. They've got it right over there. Hey? Um, it's just a common thing. Everyone, everyone has it, especially in the major cities. Um, do, you think it, do you think it helps them though? If everyone's got them? 
Yes, they do. I think everyone should have a therapist, honestly. I, I think... No, but do you think it helps America? Like, are we noticing that they're just far more balanced and in tune with who they are? Than that is are? a very different conversation. <laughs> what, are you asking if Donald has one? Well, everyone there has a therapist. Does it, does it make any difference with them? But I think it's just the fact that they're f so further on than we are with regards to mental health and it being a, uh, something that's just so natural. And we all have, I mean, we could all, I'm sure, in this, completely open up and go into concerns, frailties that we have in our lives about stuff that we think about. And some of it will be, is that it? Is that what's what you roll over at night thinking about? And some will be a bit more extreme, but as long as they all affect you, whether it's yeah the severities and the really serious end of the scale or the kind of minor stuff, and we all look at it and say the worried well well when we said last week about sam smith sat on his doorstep of his four million pound house crying and got absolutely slated oh mm. he's got oh, that, that was savage <laughs> yeah he got absolutely yeah he did caught up, which and you got yeah, but you're gonna as a celebrity in the limelight you're gonna get slated yeah, yeah. no matter what you do it's just no no it. absolutely but just but the yeah. point being that just because he has this so-called perfect life and he could financially yeah exactly he is day. well within his rights to be upset absolutely yeah. of course he is um, I, think, I think Graham you just touched on a point though about people's different levels of shame and shame is a really really interesting topic and it's one that's really hard to study without kind of connecting to your own shame points and shame thrives in silence so the things we think are fundamentally wrong about us or you know the things we think make us bad or make us not worthy they all stay locked inside us and and the longer we keep them in there the the you know the more mentally unwell they make us so i think you know if, if we were to be able to kind of share our shame you know a bit more easily with one another and and uh, you know maybe through therapy then we're gonna we're definitely gonna help ourselves do you see that changing in the short term as kids we're taught how to clean our teeth but not taught how to look after our mind which oh, really when you like think that. about that it, like it blows your mind how many times did your parents tell you, you brush for two minutes or you sing happy birthday the match of the day theme tune blah 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 but you never ever are taught how to look after your mind i mean i wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if you know there were classes for parents about you know the impact that their behavior and their their kind of role modeling can have on their children you know p children pick up so much of their their mental health through you know their family situation and their you know from their parents at such an early age and i think I think there's definitely a huge, huge gap that needs to be filled in terms of parents being made aware about how to have those conversations with their children or how to carve out time to properly ask them how they are or how to role model that actually it's okay not to always be happy or it's okay to feel sad or it's okay. I think one of the biggest ones I see is it's actually okay for your child to be angry and express its anger. I think one of the things we we do as a society is we, we are scared of anger and we say to our child no don't express you know your frustration or your anger you know you've got to try and be happy and I think one of the things one of the, the best pieces of the best pieces of advice I could give parents are just show up for your child and listen to how they are and validate that don't feel the need to fix it or change it or rescue it and don't take it personally if your child is angry with you they still love you they just need to be able to express that anger and know that their their caregiver their parent their carer whoever is looking after them is going to show up for them in whatever emotional state they they show and I think of as parents I think if as parents we know that it can really help us parent and it can help us emotionally validate our 
our children and and will help their well-being as well well so on the subject of children what age do you offer uh, your services to to be to be as as truthful as as i can be i'm not specifically trained in offering in offering child therapy i i do have some child clients some young client young people clients and um, because i've done the additional training around how they are slightly different to adults but my my degree is in is in adult psychotherapy so i don't take on as many children as i do adults i i tend to prefer to work with adults but you know if a parent feels that i'm going to be a good fit because i don't know their son or daughter is at the endowed schools and they want somebody that you know has a deeper understanding of what it's like to go through that system or i think actually my age makes me quite child friendly i think i'm i'm young enough that children feel they can relate to me and you know not i'm not saying that older therapists cannot be related to but i do think there's a there's a softness in my age that children find helpful to talk to so yeah I, I i probably don't want to offer myself up as a, a predominantly child therapist but i i do i do work with some clients and and you know some of them are aged between sort of 10 and 16 so it, it ranges 